Welcome to the Book Supplied Podcast, presented by WSL Leadership. In this podcast, we talk about an awesome book and how to apply it to your work, sport, or life. I'm your host, Iggy Perillo. Thanks for joining me. On this episode, we'll be talking about the book Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, and I am very excited to be talking today with my special guest, Franklin Taggart. Franklin, can you introduce yourself to the audience for a hot second? Thanks, Iggy. Um, yeah, I'm... I'm just delighted to be here. And uh, my uh, my longest uh, story has been a story of music. Uh, I knew that I wanted to be a musician uh, when I was about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. And so I followed that, uh, that star for about 43 years. And I just retired from music last year um, and am not looking back. But um, <laughs> In the midst of all that, that that career was interrupted several times by life events, and one of the things that uh, I was challenged with at some point was that my music career wasn't possible for due, due to some health reasons. During that time, I was introduced to two areas that I really found fascinating and fun, and one of them was just digital the digital realm. Uh, has been a, a fun roller coaster to spend some time on. And in addition, during that time, some people started to look to me for what ended up being coaching, although I didn't know it at the time. So for the past, I don't know, 12 years or so, um, I've been offering some coaching services. I work mostly with people who are on a creative path or they want to be on a creative path. And uh, a lot of them are coming from traditional career paths and they want to to dive into a more creative self self-directed kind of a path and i help them make that transition absolutely so that's a little bit yeah that's a little bit why i wanted to talk with you about this book right cool. in specific because this is the I know I totally just cut off what you were saying, but I All hope right. you are uh, just so excited uh, because this is the same thing Elizabeth Gilbert is talking about a little bit, how we access creativity, but also she's pretty clear in talking about like, here's her creative path. And she gives like stories of other people, like how they access creativity and make creativity part of their life and the creation of things, artistic things, writing things, just sort of, you know, she kind of focuses pretty much on writers. That's her field a little bit. And I know you help folks sort of birth these creative ideas into the world. And so I saw some possible alignment there, but I also suspect there's some disalignment between how you operate and how you see this happening and how Elizabeth Gilbert's uh, story and narrative and process that she engages in. And so I'm curious, I sort of was like, Franklin, read this book. Franklin, read this book. I want to talk to you about this book. Uh, yeah, what did you think? How Did this book resonate with you or not or some parts? I'm so curious. Well, I've had this book on my Kindle for probably over two years, and this gave me the impetus to finally, you know, dust it off and read it. Um, and I'm I'm really glad because I think the timing for me was was pretty good as well uh, to read this book. Um, it's really hard for me to to encapsulate my thoughts about it in any kind of a brief form, but I've got a lot to say and a lot of. Uh, I was affected very deeply by the book, by the way. Oh, okay. 
what um, affected you or what yeah what stuck stood out to you what stands out to you now having read it recently but like what's at the top of your mind about it well i think there were some things that she talked about that i found um i found just a real empathetic soul with with some of the experiences that i've had um being a creative person and being a creative entrepreneur and a creative business person is not an easy path for most people and i think the thing the way that she captured that is about as accurate as i've seen like she wasn't blowing smoke up our skirts saying that that we should you know just because you're a talented person means that you should make a living from it she wasn't really proposing that at all and in fact, I think she she ascribes her success more to luck and persistence than anything else, you know. And I appreciated that about what she said because I feel like that there's a there's kind of a there's a narrative that's out there that says just because you're talented means that you should make your livelihood from that, um, and that's not necessarily the case for most people. Um, in fact, most of the people that I know who are creative end up not going the business direction because they don't want to lose the love that they have for the creating. And they don't want to be, they don't want to be put in a position where they have to create because the rent has to be paid. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. She specifically advocates for keeping your day job. She was like, keep that. your day job, which is a little bit of this sort of controversial, I don't know, it, it catches people's attention. It catches people's ideas because there's, this, yeah, like this counter narrative that, well, if you're creative, ditch your day job, fully commit, you know, like that yeah. sort of storyline, which then I think you were exactly right. It puts you in the, the position of, oh, now I need to produce. Now I need to, yeah. to do the work. And I think it makes me think of, I don't know if you've read any work by um, Neil Gaiman, but he talks about yeah. how he does the work. He's like, I show up, I do the work. I show up, I do the work. Like he schedules yeah. himself in and he talked about a, a moment where he was supposed to be working with another partner on producing something, a story, or yeah, I don't quite remember the details. And it was he said a good omens story. Was that it? He, I don't remember. He was yeah. working with Terry Pratchett on Good Omens. Yeah. Oh, was that it? I don't know yeah. if that's the one though, where he said he showed up and the person was like, you know, I'm not feeling it today. And he's oh, like, yeah. oh, okay, you're not feeling it today. Like, I'm here to do the work. Like we, you know, this is on the schedule. And he's yeah, like, that Great. was a different project. Okay, yeah, I don't <laughs> think that was Terry Patchett. And so, uh, but then he's like, cool, he knows it. Like he worked with the person as best he could. He's like, I will never work with that person again because they wouldn't show up. They weren't able to show up and just do the work on, on literally on demand. So that's like the Neil Gaiman sort of side narrative and process, I would say, so that yeah. is some people's process versus Elizabeth Gilbert, who's like, well, I did keep doing the work and keep doing the work, but I had a day job. So I didn't have to like feel the yeah. pressure that the work had to produce every every minute, every, every day. And maybe that's at different places in their career and, you know, and part of different pieces of the same storyline in some ways, but also that pressure to, I need to do the work and have it produced means it doesn't feel like a joyful hobby for some people anymore. Yeah. It feels like, oh, this is a job. And who's my, my boss sucks. Oh, wait, I'm my boss. I suck. You know, like it, <laughs> it's tough for people. One of the ways that she articulated it that I thought was just absolutely wonderful. And it actually, this was one of the moments that kind of like was a an aha moment for me. And I think part of it is that I've just been in the mode for so long of 
how to have a business uh around your creativity that i just i i this was a new way of thinking about it but the way that she articulated it was that her jobs were a way to support her writing and i loved that because that took away the the impetus for the writing to have to support her and that gave her complete freedom to be available for the writing that needed to happen. Yeah. And I thought that that yeah. was wonderful. Yeah. And, and the writing didn't have to serve someone else's purpose. I think when we create yeah. for, for market or for sale or for by commission, even we're a little bit engaging in what someone else will buy and what someone else, what the market, you know, supports what, you know, what we've been commissioned to do like that type of work. And I think that, that, Create some limits and some, and not all those are bad. It's not bad to have limits or boundaries or, you know, I think it was, uh, Louis Armstrong who said, don't give me, you know, freedom, give me a deadline. I think it was one of his yeah. quotes kind of thing, like <laughs> that, that spurs creativity to have a deadline, to have, you know, constraints, you know, there's not, yeah. I don't say anything she's arguing against them, but also she had time to grow and like build her practice. And I mean, yeah. she really talks about this a lot, like filling notebooks and notebooks with ideas and bits of story and bits of dialogue. And uh, she talks about waiting tables for, you know, probably decades to be honest, she does not super clear, but having yeah. a little notebook to capture snippets of conversation or ideas or things just by engaging in humans. It wasn't that then she like would go off in the, you know, the writer's retreat and just create things, she would have all this rich human interaction to draw from. And that supported yeah. her when she get, had her writing process and when she would engage in writing. But it was very much tied to the world she was living in, which was, yeah, I know waiting tables. She said mentioned having multiple other part-time jobs and different types of work she was doing in different places. Yeah. And that was her sort of her research, right? Or But she kept practicing and practicing and practicing and writing this article and that thing and this, you know, I just yeah. imagined her having notebooks and notebooks or files and files full of pieces and parts and little things and this and that, and just articles and ideas that she are to different degrees fleshed out or done. You know, I would not be surprised if she has like full books just sort of sitting around being like, nah, it's not ready yet or, you know, whatever well, you have out to there. Wonder. Yeah. She's written that much. Um, and I also, have you read any of Stephen Pressfield's books? I don't think I have exactly. Remind me, like I've, the name is very familiar though. Stephen Pressfield is is another writer. He's he's one that writes a lot about writing, but his first big breakthrough was a, a, a book that ended up being picked up for a film called The Legend of Bagger Vance. Oh, I have seen that movie. So okay. there's that. <laughs> so Stephen wrote that, okay. that book, but he's written two books about writing that I think are some of the best that are out there. And one of them is called The War of Art. And mm. the other one is called Do the Work. And both of those books are fascinating books. But one of the things that he talks about, it was 27 years of him sitting down and writing every day before Bagger Vance got picked up. And that was his first book to get published. Mm -hmm. But it was 27 years of, of him supporting his writing and him showing up to write. And it's like, yeah, it wasn't an overnight sensation or success at all. Although, he, you know, what he joked about was that it took about two weeks before Bagger Vance got picked up for a film. Oh, okay. Um, it was fast once it happened. It was quick once it happened. But that 27 years was not a short time. No, that's, yeah. that's like incubation period, 27 years for two weeks of like kind of yeah. rocketing success, right? Yeah. Yep. And I think that is the reality 
more people live in that reality of the 27 years than they do of the like two weeks. I am, uh, I don't know if you read Elizabeth Gilbert, uh, Eat, Pray, Love, her, her yeah. big breakout success. Over 100 weeks on the bestseller list, huge, huge, hugely successful. I yeah. really did not like that book. It's one of the few books that I was like, ah, it didn't land with me. It made me think I actually didn't like the whole genre of memoir. Cause I'm like, this is what memoirs are. I don't even like yeah. the genre, but then realized, no, it's just this book I don't like. And that's cool. A lot of people loved it. It became a movie, you know, like whatever. It had its own life out there, a lot of popularity. And Elizabeth Gilbert, not in uh, Big Magic as much, but she's talked about the story of like, you have this great success and then, then what? Then you have to keep living. That's right. And she, oh, in this book, she does talk about how she still didn't quit her day jobs. She still kept her day jobs, even after yeah. this big success. Cause she's like, well, what am I still going to be able to make money doing this? Like, yeah, this one book like landed really big deal. Amazing. And it wasn't until like, I think two or three books later after that, where she's like, okay, this is going to be sustainable for me. I can quit my day jobs now. Like that, yeah. that pinnacle moment of success, super popular book, movie, you know, all that thing. Uh, didn't she didn't quit her day jobs then like she still wasn't like i yeah. don't i don't need these limits or i'm not in a place to trust my creativity and i think a lot of what this book is about trusting her creativity and her own process and her own yeah. creative um flow to things to to be able to do what she wanted to do and be able to make what she wanted to make and send it out to the world and have it be received well i mean there's sort of all these different pieces yeah I think the thing that I was really struck by, and again, I, I go back to that as one of the most affirming things about the book, is that she plainly says, you know, you can't count on this as a way to sustain yourself, especially at first. And if you do get lucky and the public loves what you do, okay, great. Celebrate that. That's cool. But don't forget to celebrate just the fact that you get to spend time in your creativity frequently. I loved that. I yeah. thought that was really affirming. I think she's really talking about this living a fulfilled life as an artist. Because we have, the, yeah. of course, the tortured artist model in our world. We're like, oh, I yeah. need to sacrifice everything for the art. And I need to like live this sort of miserable existence to create amazing art. And there are different versions of that story, whether they have to do with poverty or addiction often is a part of that, the the sort of myth of that story in many places. And just other like toiling forever and being unrecognized, you know, like sort of that, uh, those pieces are part of the this myth. And she would say yeah. like, eh, okay, cool. This is why you have your day job. <laughs> you can like keep going, but also, you need to understand your own process for creating and your own process for producing things that resonate with you. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, if it resonates with the public, that's great. But if you try and write or create just for the public, like there's some, she doesn't quite say you're selling out. You know, she, yeah. I don't think she would argue that because people produce things for mass consumption. Like that is like the goal of some people's creative endeavor and yeah. art and things like that. And, but there is, it has to be this piece of honesty and integrity or else you're just sort of, you know, repeating yourself or you know mirroring what you already see out there and to be authentic in your creativity takes time and takes sort of being able to rely on yourself in a way that for her took a long time even after amazing successes she was like i still yeah. need to come to terms with relying on myself to create took in years. this way yeah <laughs> yeah it took years well I'm, I'm really curious what was it about eat pray love that didn't resonate for you oh i did not 
like who Elizabeth Gilbert was as a person in this book. And she talks yeah. about herself the whole time. I'm like, I don't, I don't think I would hang out with you. I don't resonate with you. I don't think I like you that much. And you just talk about yourself all the time. Like this genre is terrible. Like <laughs> memorize people just talk about themselves, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so yeah. And, and this maybe has to do with when I read it probably pretty close to when it came out, which I think was, early 2000s maybe i don't yeah, remember for sure it was right around there uh and i think i was just like Ugh. like it seems so self-indulgent and i'm like i yeah. don't i don't like you i don't care about your self-indulgent journey and that 100 my take and that didn't turn me off to elizabeth gilbert forever i think you know obviously i read this book i'm like oh you have all the interesting things to say great la, la, you know i have go a on. theory about why it was so popular oh yeah tell me i love your theory because I don't know that that book would have been as, as popular had it been released at a different time. But I think one of the things that happened was that that book was released at a time when people were doing a lot of spiritual searching, which was the time after 9-11. Um, and it wasn't immediately after 9-11. I think it was a few years later. But there was an extraordinary surge in spiritual searching at that time. And that's what that book was about one person's spiritual search and so many people just resonated with that part of it and i think that was one of the reasons that it was so wildly popular was that it just you know it the timing of it coincided with that thirst i think i think you're right i think it, it defined a genre of being the sort of nomadic-ish searcher in a way that wasn't i'm a total dirtbag uh you know like you know, whatever, like I'm trying to think of the, uh, what's it called? Zen and the other motorcycle maintenance or yeah. the monkey wrench gang, or, you know, like there's these stories of like, I'm going to go out there and be a searcher and a wanderer and experience the world. And it's going to affect me. Like that is not a new genre, but I think she modernized it in a way through that book that was like, particularly, I would say specifically being a woman in that field, like that had been, I think it's okay for men to go out and do the searches, but she's like, no, I'm, a, I don't think it was as popular now you're like oh yeah i'm gonna go on a spiritual journey i think there was like some 60s hippie like oh yeah i'm gonna go live in your ashram whatever blah 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 but yeah. she brought it i think it i'm just i googled really quick i think it came out in 2007 so there was some time okay. uh, time between yeah for that to come out and i think she she modernized it she made it accessible in a certain way and she was very human and fumbly and bumbly. Like the part that actually sticks with me from that book was how she talked about her shame and embracing the, all these shameful things she's done in her life. I'm like, yes. okay, that's cool. That's hardcore. That's super intense. That and when she watched a soccer game in Italy and she like translated what the fans were saying, I'm like, that's actually very funny. And I'm sure there was more to the book. Obviously there was more to it and people loved it. Yeah. But I'm like, Ugh, I still, that's cool that you're on your journey. And I was at the, that time I read it working for an organization where I was facilitating people's growth and development. I'm like, come on my course, quit belly aching about this. Let's get you on track with some like character and leadership and service ethic. And like, we'll go, totally. you know, so she would have been a great student for me at that time in the work I was doing. And in reality, I was just reading her book and being like, oh, probably eye rolly and I don't want to hang out with you. Yeah. But yeah. That's a great point, though, that 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 spoke to a generation of people wanting a little bit of direction and a little bit of like deeper connection and deeper meaning. And I think that thread carries through in Big Magic where she's like, we're not alone. We're not little isolated, little, in, you know, creative bubbles. We are connected to this deeper. She kind of talks about this sort of woo version of like creativity and creative yeah. energy sort of out there in a sort of uh, universal external sense. And, you know, these different artists. Way. 
yeah. Like the other artists, like grabbing the tail of the poem and like pulling it back in in reverse and like just kind of how other people engage with like this deep sense of creativity and which she calls the big magic, right? Like that's this creative energy of the universe. Yeah. The thing that I think I found challenging about this book and the thing that I would, that I would say is least like my experience is the woo part because she kind of categorized it as an extra extraordinary uh, kind of an experience. And quite honestly, for me, I'm in that state of mind a lot of the time, and it's not all of that out of the ordinary. And it feels normal to me. It doesn't feel like this woo mystical experience as much as it just feels like this is the way that life is. And so one of the things that I felt like is that her categorization of it that way may be misleading for some people mm. in that they may say, well, that, I could never do that. I could never have that experience. That's well beyond my pay grade or whatever. And they would then not, not engage with the creative process. And I think that that was one of the things that I found challenging about the book. Now, I'm a woo guy. I, I love woo stuff and I love mystical experiences. I'm all about them. But in my experience, creativity isn't categorized that way. I do have frequent flow experiences with creativity, like daily. But I don't see that as abnormal and I don't see that as extraordinary i see that as that is uh that is something that i would call a predictable part of the experience because it happens so frequently right well, but do you think that's because you have created a life where that is present for you in a way that i think many people don't they're like oh i don't know i'm not creative or i'm not creative enough or you know like the the self-doubt language that people have like when they feel those moments of creative flow which i've all i've been in that state before and i think i don't yeah. structure myself to do that often enough i would say even though we just before we got on i'm like i don't turn on my ringer on my phone i make deep work yeah. spaces in my life uh we talked about deep work and cal newport yeah. you know tie into a previous podcast episode by the way everyone but i think the uh the idea that for a lot of people that is it, it feels different like time moves differently your brain functions a little differently and it is not like our everyday, you know, I'm just hanging out, chit-chatting with people kind of life. It's not as superficial as much of our other pieces of our existence. It is a maybe more deep, more personal flow. Flow states are amazing. And I love yeah. that. And we can we can set ourselves up for that. And we can set ourselves up to engage with that in a way. And I feel like almost Elizabeth Gilbert makes it like seem really hard. I think you're right. She's like, oh, you have to really work for this. You have to really, you know, try hard. You have to explore these different things. And I think there is yeah. a point to being, you do need to explore what works for you and figure out if you need to take notes at the diner, or if you need to, you know, be at, at home alone with all the, you know, the blinds drawn or whatever, if that's, you know, gives you creative freedom. But yeah, maybe she does make it seem a little a little difficult. She makes it seem difficult, I guess. Yeah. The other thing that I think is really important is to, to really make sure that we're not confusing artistic um, engagement and creative engagement, because I think creative is a much bigger, a much bigger and more widespread thing than we actually think. I think one of the things that's happened is that we've narrowed it down and we only, we only think that artistic people, 
are creative. That's not the case at all. And the one, there are a couple of instances I like to point to. I've got a, a good friend who is a mechanic and he specializes in Volkswagens, the old Volkswagens that from like the late sixties through the seventies. And his wife is constantly having to literally go out to the garage, take the wrench out of his hand <laughs> Mm -hmm. and pull him into the house just so that he will eat and sleep. And the thing that happens for him is when he's working on his cars, he goes into a flow state that is so deep that he doesn't realize that 11 hours has passed mm. and he hasn't eaten since breakfast. He goes into that almost every time that he works on a car. So the thing that I would say is that that create that that work that he's doing as a mechanic is every bit as creative as if I'm writing a song. It exercises many of the same muscles and, and fires a lot of the same synapses as songwriting or painting or anything else where, where the invisible world is meeting the visible world. You know, that's when that's when we're aware of the flow state because this this sense of separate person fades into the background. And then all of a sudden there's this transcendent experience that can happen just as easily for the mechanic. The other example that I like to use is I know an accountant here in the town where I live. And when during tax season, he doesn't get burned out and he doesn't need to have a vacation after tax season. For him, that work is this dance of joy. And he gets so tickled when he is working with a spreadsheet. <laughs> it is a remarkable thing to watch. But he is having, he's having a creative moment there. And it's not limited just because he's not painting something or creating an artistic work. It's every bit as creative and every bit as joyful as the person who's doing the artistic thing. So the thing that I'll tell people is, I think that you need to look at the way that you do what you do as a possible avenue for your creativity, because you, you probably have had the creative experience repeatedly and didn't know it. Mm, didn't know it or didn't appreciate it, for sure. Maybe both, you know? I think there are, I think there are lots of ways that we lose time or feel like we're in a flow state when we're not. And I think like, and to me, yeah. some of that is when we're consuming, like I could sit down and read a book for like, you know, if it's a good book, I can sit there and read for hours and hours and hours on end and be like, Oh wait, I need to eat. Like, Oh wait, my legs are cramping up. You know, like I need yeah. to do whatever. And I think that is like engagement in a certain way, but I think it's very different when, um, I write articles for my newsletter. I write, you know, uh, curriculum for trainings. I do this sort of more creative output style work. Yeah. And I think that flow state is different than the consuming flow state. We're like, oh, I'm going to binge this entire season of the show that I really like. Like, cool, I can do that. But in the end, I'm, I haven't activated myself and my mind in a way that I'm producing anything. And maybe, you know, I can yeah. be inspired. I can read an interesting book and have a lot of thoughts and, you know, engage with it. And I think it's differently when I read now for my for the this podcast in particular. I, I'm taking notes. I have a notebook. I'm thinking yeah. of who I want to talk about this book with, or if someone sent it to me, like, oh, what is, what's their take on it going to be? You know, these kind of things. 
which is a different level of engagement than I'm just going to consume this and be like, high five, everyone. That was cool. You know, like yeah. that was fun. That And there's nothing wrong with doing things for pure enjoyment and for to to be a consumer of other people's art and other people's creativity and other worlds. Yeah, but a different it's different. Thing, though. Yeah. I like that distinction a lot. I really like that a lot because the difference to me in, in what you're describing is that there's one state that's kind of a passive state and one that's an engaged and that there is an assertion that's being made there's a there's definitely an energetic difference to me of those two things and like yeah vegging out and binge watching something i can i can get on that bandwagon very easily <laughs> right but at the end of it i don't have anything to show for that time except for maybe a little bit of replenished energy Sure, sure. And I think there's this other weird middle ground, which is like the gamification of our world. And, yeah. and I mean, gamification, I think, is like, has been a technique applied to learning environments. And I operate in a lot of learning environments where like, oh, I, you need a bell to go off, you need uh, to see your progress, you need these different things. And, and yes, to some degree, you need recognition, you need to be validated and to see that you're improving over time. And I think there is the like, literal gaming world where you've gotten very good at within a narrow scope of like playing a playing a game right you know i think that's not even a great way to define it because there are social aspects depending on the game or to get really yeah. good at a at a hobby is cool like great engage in a hobby which may or may not involve you being thoughtful or creative and engaging in the world and producing something like i could <laughs> i could get really good at something yeah. It connects me to people, but have I even produced anything other than within that narrow scope of what that activity, that game, that hobby is? I think it's different. Yeah. Well, I, as you were describing that, I was thinking of Pavlov's dog. Mm, yeah. How does that relate for you? <laughs> it's like, um, you know, that gamification where the rewards are all the bells and whistles and the dings. It's like, oh, okay. The dopamine is what we're talking about here. Um and yeah, we've we've become kind of enslaved by that that belief that the dopamine is the most important thing. Um, the thing that, that that strikes me about that idea, I'm not opposed to gamification, but I think that the gamification can't just be done as a manipulative piece. It needs to have meaning in the context of what's being learned. So for me, like. I want the I want the game to be a touchstone for the things that I've learned in that process. I want the game to come to mind as a way to reinforce, you know, that concept or that process or that that skill that I've learned. Absolutely. And I think you know? you're also speaking of it needs to be internal in a certain way. If it's fully yeah. externalized, if if I do a certain thing and someone else gives me a high five, like cool, I've earned a high five from that person. But in yeah. reality, if internally I can reinforce the, the work that I'm doing, and none of these are like easy things to do. Like focus no. is hard, being really attentive and focused, no matter what thing you're focused on, whether it is literally a game or liter you know writing or an artist endeavor, like all these things require focus. And rewarding yourself for intentional focus is, I think, generally speaking, a great idea. <laughs> like we could use more yeah. focus and more of that deep work, more of those deep um learning and growth environments to put it we putting ourselves in those deeper learning and growth environments but if everything i do 
is somehow all the rewards come from some external source. I think I'm doing myself a disservice. And I think those are the people that burn out and or are more prone to burn out and are more prone to, to lose momentum over time because there's only so many people that are going to give you a pat on the back for doing so many things without you internally being motivated to do that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at some point Pavlov's dog just learned to expect the food without ringing the bell. Right. You know, and that's sitting there drooling. Like you just said, drooly dog at the end of the day. You're like, okay, (laughs) exactly. Cool. I think that's kind of an interesting, an interesting direction to go with this conversation. Um, I, I feel like that we are in a time where creativity, um, I think we're going to be in a, in a, in a fight for it. And we may already be. <laughs> How so? How so? Well, I didn't mention it at the beginning, but I actually made a book because I can't take claim for the authorship of it. I, I made a book at the beginning beginning of the year about AI. Oh, okay. Was, I made the whole book with chat GPT mm-hmm. like about two weeks after it came out. Mm-hmm. And I just asked a bunch of questions that I had about artificial intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like that one of the things that's happening in one of my good friends read the book and he said, I hate this book. Oh, great. And I, <laughs> I said, you it. should hate that book yeah. because, you know, there isn't a soul in that book. Mm-hmm. There's only questions and answers and nothing but sterile, generic information that we've already known for the last 25 years. But the thing that's really interesting is that that is what that is what the bot knows about itself. And that's all it can spit out, right? Right, right. And one of the things that he said that has stuck with me to this day is he said, the thing that bothered me most is that you had absolute, absolutely no skin in the game. Mm, right, right, yeah. And that's that's the thing that was a real good commentary of of the whole AI and you know learning model language models and stuff like that. If we become so reliant on them that we don't exercise our own communication muscles and our own creative muscles, we lose. <laughs> I agree a thousand percent. You and know. I would say the the trade-off is volume like quantity and quality a little oh bit. Like we can yeah. generate so such a huge volume of things using AI supports along the way, asking good questions, using good prompts. You can get tons, like apparently you, a whole book you created, you know, like I assume yeah. it's not like a two page book. It's probably pretty long, pretty- It's 130 know. pages. Yeah, that's a yeah. solid endeavor there. So we can create so much volume that I think the worry I have is that people are going to be too tired to look for creativity then. Like, well, I have 400 books on AI now that I can read. And I think that's actually to tie it back to this actual book where Liz Gilbert is going, Elizabeth Gilbert is going with like the big magic is when you engage with creativity personally, it you can't predict that outcome in the same way. Yeah. You, you And you're as very expansive in opening versus constrained by, you know, as much machine learning has been done from between these dates, right? And, you know, enough like blank filling in the blanks of other you know people and all these different places where uh information has been scraped like that's cool yeah but it's never going to be the same like you said like it has no soul compared to engaging in as she would say big magic which is unpredictable in some ways 
creative in the sense, like we were talking about a flow state where you were sparked yeah. internally and motivated internally. And that's like one of the definitions of flow is that you are internally motivated because you, what you want to do is just slightly beyond your ability of what you can do is uh, one sort of conceptualization of flow state that you're like, oh, I want to do this yeah. thing, but I'm not quite able to do it easily. That's when we're, that's one pathway to flow pretty easily. And so once you engage in that and you're in this sort of big magic flow creative endeavor engagement, like all everything else seems boring by the wayside. Like, and yeah. there's space for support. So there's a space for, uh, you know, getting ideas in. There's a space for research, you know, in all these different venues. But it's, the output is not ever the same if you don't do it. No. The human brain is infinitely more complicated than a scrape of the internet. God, hope. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so the volume of things we engage with now, and like I've been to, uh, I've been in little seminars like, hey, we're going to create, you know, an outline for a talk in 30 seconds, boop, boop, boop. And, you know, they kind of do a AI demo. I'm like, cool. That looks like a boring talk, yeah, that, but thanks. I'm glad you got an outline. And, you know, and, and I'd say the better seminars and, you know, learning is like, yeah, you get these ideas, run it through your brain, filter it, figure out what actually is true and accurate and works for you and then move on. It's like, ideally from some conceptualizations that AI gives you like a step in the right direction, gives you like a little momentum, a little push. I'm like maybe, maybe that works yeah. for people. If it's creating the whole product, like, Ooh, the, your book, uh, don't publish that. I mean, that's Well, it's just... already published. It's oh, on great. Amazon. Oh, there you go. Yeah, well, Even that better. Was the, that was the point. It was the experiment. It oh, was like, yeah. how's it doing on Amazon? It's doing horribly as it oh, should. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that's just it. It's like, I, I, I don't want to take any credit for this thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. other than the only thing that I had was the idea. Right. And the idea, as far as I'm concerned, is worth the paper that it's, you know, that it's it not fits printed on. on. Yeah. yeah. It fits on a gum wrapper that I could easily throw away and never think about again. So the thing that's really interesting to me is that we're entering an age where I really feel like that we're we are going to have to really advocate for human creativity as the superior choice. Mm. It's like it's going to be too easy for people, especially people who want a fast, mediocre output. It's going to be too easy for them to get that now. Oh, that's happening yeah. nonstop now. And I would so say, oh, sorry, go ahead, finish up. Well, the thing that I think is really important is that, you know, this podcast has surprises. There are twists and turns here that are that are unpredictable. And that that can't come from a scrape. You know, that can only come from a, a real-time heart and soul and intellect dialogue where where we are inspired by each other. And I think that that's the thing that we've got to look at is that we're coming into a time when we really need to understand that human crafted is valuable above and beyond anything that tech will ever be able to even allow us to do creatively. So I'm, I'm becoming more and more outspoken about that. I'm not anti-AI. I just am saying we need to understand that AI cannot be the thing that we rely on for 
or genuine creativity. You know, the, there was one other part of the book, if, if you don't mind, I just wanted to mention this. There was one other part of the book that I was somewhat bothered by. And that was the whole story that she was talking about with Ann Patchett, where um, she had the idea for a book and then she let it sit for a number of years. Then she kissed Ann Patchett and then Ann Patchett <laughs> got the idea for the book and it was the same idea. That's a wonderful story and it's very intriguing. I've heard it before. Yeah, she tells that story a lot. She loves that story. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it's it's a fascinating story and it's it's very, you know, sweet. And it's not a universal truth about creativity. And one of the things that she tried to pass off is that you need to act on your creative inspiration when it happens or it's going to be gone. And I have to tell her that I can I can tell you that the songs that I've written that I like the best are the ones that I started and couldn't finish. And then 25 years later, mm. <laughs> something happened. And then all of a sudden the song was done. Mm, it was ready. It, it incubated. There was an incubation period. And it was like, I didn't look at that song in the, in that period of time, but something happened, the circumstances or the inspiration that was missing at the beginning. Finally, the blanks got filled in and the song was finished and it was a most satisfying experience. So the thing that I wanted to say is don't let that story about Ann Patchett getting her idea through the kiss. Don't let that stop you from, from writing down your ideas and coming back to them later. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you really described well, like the purpose of doing all of this is that satisfaction you feel personally in yeah. the creative process. And I think there's satisfaction in the process itself and engaging in that way in the flow. And I think totally. there's satisfaction in the outcome and like, I've done this thing, here it is, you know, world. And I think the people that struggle the most are the people that either don't embrace their own unique process or don't, don't figure out what works for them to get to that flow and that process. And, or the people who are like, this is never done. This is never done. This, you know, the people who are never satisfied with their output in a way, I have another friend who's like always tweaking, always tweaking, always tweaking, you know, uh, a visual design that she's making. And so she has to engage in things that have like a deadline or else she would just, it would never be released because yeah. it would never quite be good enough, never quite be good enough. And I think those are like the killers of not, killers of creativity for people are not developing trust in your process or, and like literally finding your process. And I think that's yeah. a part that's good about the book is that she talks about different people's processes and how they're different from hers and kind of these different stories around that, which I think are kind of, a lot of are cute and kind of funny. And then, uh, but then she talks about having, like being really satisfied with an output and like being willing to let things go and be like, this is done yeah. or this is done enough or this is done for yeah. now. Like whatever works for you to release things and to, you know, send that book to the publisher and send that article to the, you know, whatever, you know, for her, like these sort of writing endeavors need to go to the people eventually and be shopped around and get rejected yeah. and someone will pick it up or not, you know, whatever the process is without sort of engaging with both sides, your creative process and you're releasing things to the world. I think you you are really just living in a half-life as a creative, I think. Yeah, there's a songwriter named Joe Pug, and I heard an interview with him several years ago that really was one of the best ways that I've heard that articulated. And he said that he felt like that he didn't feel like that songs were supposed to be one-sided. He said, you're, you are writing into um an arena of some kind or you're writing into a circle and that that song 
is intended to have a closed circle on the other side. He said, but I can only be responsible for the one side that I'm on, and then I have to put it out there and let the other side take care of itself. And I really liked that distinction that he made, because I feel like that largely that is what the experience feels like. It's like, okay, I've done this thing now. Now it has a life of its own. And now everybody else is going to make it their own in some way that may have not even been close to my original intent. Holy yeah. cow. Yeah, it's just yeah. out there. I think I think Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this too, when she's like, she creates something and people are like, wow, this is so deep. Do you, you're referencing this and that. And she's like, was I? Like, okay, <laughs> like, cool that you saw that there. I don't know. You know, I think I've heard that from multiple sort of uh, writers often that they're like, oh, this was had so many deep layers of nuance. And there's like, it was actually just a story about a dog. Like, I don't know. You know, like, it, yeah, right. It's, and I think that speaks to that. Like, yeah, the other half of the equation, we, we fill in the blanks in our own minds. And I think that's the beauty of, interesting art right that like oh, what yeah. how this inspires me or how it feels to me how i relate to it all the people who, all those people that related to eat pray love and me being like nah whatevs you know like that's great yeah. like there's so many different options out there for people to connect with and relate to and i i would say that eat pray love was not poorly written i just didn't like the story <laughs> right like it's yeah and there's plenty of great movies that i don't like and plenty of great you know, songs i don't like you know whatever they are out there i think that's it's up to you to like it or not, or feel resonant with it or not, or be moved by it or not. And I think that you have to get it out there to the world. I love that. Like it's up to everyone else to fill in the other half of that, that perspective, yeah. that equation. Yeah. But it's, it, it wasn't created in a vacuum mm. and it's not intended for a vacuum. There is somebody somewhere who, who will, who will want that, you know, Absolutely. I think it may are... only be one person. Who knows? <laughs> well, it may just be you in, in yeah. embracing that creative endeavor and being true to your creative self, being yeah. true to your process, being true to your creative vision in whatever way, you know, it comes about. I think Absolutely. that is that is also okay to serve yourself through your creative acts and your hobby, you know, whatever hobbies. Not yeah. everything has to be a you know, five thousand stepping stones to a lucrative business, you know, make a million dollars. Like, I think it's okay to be creative and enjoy and embrace the creative life. There are on, only so many still life paintings of fruit that I want to have in my house. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some that you could spend a lot for and some that you could probably yeah. do yourself and be equally happy with, I bet. You know, I'm not a visual, I've not embraced oil painting as a medium ever, but I bet yeah. I could draw some fruit and it would be something. <laughs> Well, there are some that are breathtaking, and then there are others that are just practice. Yeah, I think like anything. And it's surprising to see something really well done and like a really well honed. I mean, we didn't even get to this distinction between craft and art. Like, I don't know if there yeah. is for me a distinction in a meaningful way, but I know people like to parse these out. And, but I think there is like, I think you can see and appreciate things and feel a really emotional attachment to a painting of fruit, for example. And yeah. someone else is just like, yeah, whatever that someone bit that apple. What, you know, like it doesn't, but you're like, oh my gosh, that made me think of all these things. And now I'm crying. And it's just this picture of fruit, you know, like whatever it is. I think yeah. there are strangely and amazingly emotive creations and endeavors. And you don't know who's going to have that response or that reaction, which is all just right. a big argument for do it, get it out there, figure totally. it out and how to like create in a way that means something to you. 
Well, we could go on for hours. I've got other things that I could that I could fill in more blanks with, but um, I I want to be respectful. Of your time. <laughs> well, I want to be respectful of your time too. I tried to like end this ten minutes ago, and I was like, but another thing you have to say that's so cool. Yes, it's been awesome talking with you today, Franklin. Yeah, Thank you, you so too. much for joining me for this conversation. I'm glad I uh, nudged you to read this book and that you were yeah. able to chat with me about it. I'm delighted. Thanks, Iggy. This has been great. Awesome. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Book Supplied Podcast. I hope you enjoyed getting to know a new book and learning how to apply its ideas to make your work, sport, or life a little bit more awesome. For more leadership education-related content, including conflict management checklists, invitations to a fun-free lunch that happens monthly, upcoming classes, webinars, and mastermind groups, please head over to wslleadership.com. Thanks, and have a great day.